for all the musicians who've led today, it's, it's been a blessing, and we want to say thank you to them. But I was reminded one time when I was doing communion service, this was at another church, and I was passing the elements, and, uh, you know, sometimes the deacons will say thank you when you hand the elements, and sometimes when you hand the elements to one another, you'll say thank you as someone passes it by, and a pastor once reminded me, we're saying thank you to the wrong person. We forget that the real thanks goes to the one who died for us. Of all services, this service is designed to say thank you to him. Now I understand it's okay uh, to express the common grace of thank you to those who are helping to serve you, but let's never forget, all praise goes to the one who died in our place. Heavenly Father, as we come to open up the word of God this morning, May our hearts be drawn once again to the one who was lifted up for us, who died in our place that we may never die, who shed his perfect, impeccable blood that we, Lord, would be washed clean forever. May our hearts rejoice with gratitude, and may we serve you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people are obsessed with time. I think a lot of people in the American culture are possessed and controlled by time. They're called time freaks by some, those who live by the clock. And not just the clock, it's the digital clock. You know, we've gone from a sundial and, and uh, maybe the hourglass into a normal clock to we want to know every single second I think it's kind of epitomized by this motto that a band director once put up in his music room. It read like this, to be early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late. To be late is inexcusable. (laughs) Those are the words of a time freak. Uh, They're good words. I'm not saying they're bad. It's just someone who's very conscious of time and orders all that they do by time. It's this attitude that's expressed uh, by the person who said, if you are consistently late, you are wasting my time, and that is rude. And so the time freaks are doing everything they can to make sure that they do what they do on time. It's an ordered world. But we are mistaken if we think that everyone views time in the same way. In fact, culturally, you might say in a very large division, there are those who live where time is strict, a strict time culture, and those who live in a flexible time culture. The the strict time culture, probably many, most Americans, uh, the Europeans, the Germans, the Swiss. Think about the Swiss and the precision of the watches they make. Do you know what their favorite motto is? Time is everything. Think about that. And you and I, uh, the, the free dictionary says, in our own language, we have over 300 idioms that are related to time. For instance, we can spend it or invest it, save it or waste it. Sometimes we kill it. We try to make good time, we're pressed for time, we're out of time, we're living on borrowed time, something happens in the nick of time. I'm not gonna say all 300, but you get the picture. 
So our life is centered so much around time. We're rather priggish about it. We, we schedule everything. We are in a hurry for everything. And our lives are lived rather frantically. The other culture where time is more flexible, they have a favorite wa- uh, motto too. Especially in Spanish-speaking countries, that motto is mañana. Mañana means tomorrow. Hey, if I don't get it done today, I'll get it done tomorrow. Let's not be too excited about pushing to make sure that everything is done today. By the way, this culture values relationships more than schedules. Those who live in a strict time culture often excuse that attitude for not building relationships. Oh, I'd love to meet with you, but I don't have time. Sorry, I'm booked. We're driving down the road and someone's got a flat tire. I'd love to help you, but I don't have time, we say as we drive by. And those who live in a rather flexible culture where things aren't so strict, sometimes their attitude toward time is a cover-up for being lazy. And you would hope that somewhere in between there would be a good balance. In the Middle East, it's more of a flexible time culture. They have this favorite motto, time is the master only of those who have no other. Ouch. That hits us, doesn't it? Some of us who try to order everything based on time. So we all share this thing called time, but we don't look at it from the same lens. We don't look at it from the same perspective God in time? Well, he's above it. He's not subservient to it. He's before it. He's over it. He's totally in control of time, and yet he created it. When he created in the seven days of creation, there was the the morning and the evening, the day and the night, the sun and the stars, one to rule the day, one to rule the night. He's the one who put time on the map. He's the one who created the seasons that we can enjoy. That's God's creation. But he's not controlled by time, but he must appreciate it or he wouldn't have created it. But I find it amazingly interesting when God became a man and then subjected himself to time, or at least became very conscious of it. He was still more concerned about people than schedules, but he lived his life by a certain time. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, and I want to look at a very interesting reference which, when first spoken, must have caused all kinds of confusion. John chapter 2. And we read in verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana, in the Galilee. We're told it's Cana of Galilee because there was another Cana in Syria. This one's smaller. It's a little village west of Nazareth. When we take our trips to Israel, we usually drive through Cana. Sometimes we have a chance to stop and see the location where they say this particular miracle took place. And it's on the third day 
Our guide tells us every time we take a trip, the wedding's on the third day and that's when Jews often got married because they don't travel on the Sabbath. The third day's Tuesday, gives, us a little, gives them a little time to travel and then have their festivities for a couple days and then a couple days to get back home before the Sabbath comes around. So on Tuesday, a wedding took place in this little village just west of where Jesus was born, or where Jesus lived in the city of Nazareth. The Bible tells us that Jesus' mother was there at this wedding. In fact, it seems implied that she had some position of authority. She was in charge, maybe, of the arrangement. Someone said maybe she had the lead catering role of this particular wedding. And that you won't find this in the biblical account, but in the extra biblical accounts, these are some gospels that were written in the day, like the uh, Coptic gospel that comes to us from Egypt. We're told that Mary was related to the groom. In fact, it says the groom was John, his mother was Salome, Mary's sister. And so Mary was there because she was part of the family and she was given some responsibility because she was part of the family and we're not surprised then when the scripture says that Jesus and his disciples were invited as well I don't think you had to drag Jesus to a wedding I think he enjoyed celebrating especially if this was family it would have been wrong for him not to be there but he rejoiced at this wedding feast and put his approval, as we say in the wedding ceremony, on the institution of marriage simply by his presence. But then tragedy struck, verse three. The wine was gone. And that was a big problem. The wine was gone. To to run out of wine was a, a major embarrassment to the host. It was essential for a Jewish feast. The rabbi said, if you don't have any wine, you don't have any joy. You say, I've never heard a pastor preach this way before. Well, you have to understand that it was, it was a great disgrace to be drunk and that this wine probably was two parts alcohol, three parts water, which means you had to work at it to get inebriated. And there wasn't a whole lot that you could drink that was really pure except something like water mixed with wine. So wine in the, in the Old Testament is a sign of joy and gladness and celebration. To run out of wine would have been a horrible social faux pas. I mean, hospitality is a sacred duty, and especially at a festival like a wedding, you can't let the guests down. So Mary, if she is in charge, would naturally be concerned. And she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. I don't know if it was poor planning, if they had more guests than they anticipated, if the duration of the celebration went on too long. I don't know, but they ran out of wine. And Jesus said, dear woman, why do you involve me? The King James reads like this. Woman, what do I have to do with you? (laughs) If I said that to my mom, I'd get my mouth washed out with soap. That's not the best translation, at least the way we understand those words. The word woman is really a a, a term of respect. We can say it in a a very negative way, woman. But it's the name that Jesus gave to Mary when he was hanging on the cross and said, woman, behold your son. Scholars strive to come up with a way to translate this. Uh, The NIV says, dear woman, and that's not bad. I kind of like the old English, milady. 
woman of esteem and honor. And then it actually says, what between me and you? Which needs a little dynamic equivalency here. We need a little interpretation to understand the literal rending of of the original. What between me and you? And I think the best understanding is your concerns are different than my concerns. You're concerned about a wedding, and that's okay, but my concerns are on a different level, on a different perspective. And right after saying that, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, verse four. Now, that must have been confusing, and that must have been mysterious, and maybe didn't even seem appropriate. This is their hour, the bride and groom. Why draw attention to yourself talking about your hour? And he didn't even explain it. He said, my hour's not yet come. And if they had no context, based on what we read in Scripture, they didn't. It would have been a very mysterious saying. But it implied several things. First of all, this hour, whatever it was, is particularly his. My hour has not yet come. It's a planned time. It's not here, but it's coming. In fact, it comes very clearly. It comes without any type of hesitation. It comes at the perfect time. In the fullness of time, it will come. And... Jesus was conscious of this impending hour. He scheduled everything around it, conscious of all that happened with relationship to his hour. The Greek word here for hour is a word that can be translated time. It can mean a moment, or it can mean a little literal hour. It can mean a day, or it can mean a season. The context is what tells us. So this hour, we're not exactly sure, but it's Something to do with time. And it's something to do with Christ. It's been planned by the Father. I find it interesting that Jesus lived his life according to a divine schedule. Very much in tune with the Father and the Father's plan. I've come here to do my Father's will. He knew that he was on time. He knew that he was on schedule. You and I need to live our lives like that aware that we are created by God, made in his image, redeemed by his son, filled with his spirit, and our lives are not our own. We need to live our lives according to God's time. Jesus was very, very conscious of that. And so he tells them, Actually, his mother first says, whatever he tells you to do, I want you to do it. So he tells the servants to fill up the water jars. We're told in verse 6 that these six stone water jars were the kind that the Jews used for ceremonial washing. And each one held about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with the water. So they filled them up to the brim. By By the way, this is perfect in preparation for the miracle. There's not gonna be anything added but water. Those big jars are filled with nothing but water. And then he tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, and they did so. And we don't know exactly when it happened, whether they saw it in the ladle or in the cup or when it was when the master of the banquet first tasted it. He didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. 
And he called the bridegroom aside and said, you know, usually at weddings, everyone brings out the best wine first and the cheaper wine at the end because then after people have had a lot of wine, their palate can't tell the difference. But you've saved the best to last. Most scholars believe that there is some uh, real spiritual application to what Jesus is doing if the jars represent Judaism and the ceremonial cle- uh, cleansing of the law and the whole approach to God by the law of Moses, Jesus is introducing a new wine that won't fit into old wineskins and it's the wine of joy and gladness of salvation. But the Bible tells us in verse 11 this is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. And when he did it, he revealed his glory. Whose glory? The glory of Christ. And when the disciples saw this power, there was no sleight of hand. The wine was miraculously recreated. The water created into wine. It was indeed a miracle that only God can perform. The disciples recognized that and they trusted him. And the glory of Christ that is the majesty and the honor of God himself was manifest in Jesus. And the Bible tells us he revealed his glory. That was the announcement of the hour. Now let's look at the protection of the hour. This phrase, my hour or the hour, is mentioned about seven times in John's gospel. The second is in John chapter seven, the protection of the hour. And we don't have time to read the whole section of scripture. There's another one of those idioms. We don't have time. So I will simply tell you that Jesus now is later on in his ministry and he's teaching at the temple and people know that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are trying to kill him and they're surprised in verse 25 of John 7 that he would teach so openly. Isn't isn't this a man they're trying to kill? They would say, could he be the Messiah? Have the authorities concluded that he is the Messiah? No, he can't be the Messiah. Nobody knows where the Messiah is going to come from, which, by the way, is not true. Be careful when you read your Bible for false statements. The Bible's not false. Everything it records is true. That is, it records what was truly said, but sometimes it records Satan speaking, and what Satan says is not true. Be careful. No one knows where the Messiah is going to come from. Uh, Excuse me, when Herod was looking for the birthplace of the Messiah, he said to the teachers of the law, where's Messiah going to come from? And they quickly said, Micah tells us, Bethlehem. So they had some knowledge, didn't they? So they were confused about this person, Jesus, teaching in the temple. And Jesus cried out and said, you know me, but you don't know the Father. And I come from the Father, and I know the Father. This upset them. Look at verse 30 of chapter 7. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Here's the divine protection of the Father. Jesus escapes death because the hour is not here. And divine providence is controlling all the affairs of the life of Christ. And he's confident that nothing can happen 
to him unless it's first filtered through the providence of God. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could live our life based on a divine timetable, knowing that God is in control of our days, and secondly, knowing that God is protecting our days and nothing can harm us or hurt us until it's his time. That's the way Jesus lived. My hour, well, he didn't say it. Actually, this is the narrator, John, recording the fact that the hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for whatever was going to happen to Jesus to happen. By the way, something very similar happens in John chapter 8, verse 20. The same words, no one could seize him because his time had not yet come. I don't know if these guys were like the Keystone Cops and they kind of tripped over their own feet when they were going after Jesus. He would slip away in the crowd. They couldn't find him. And off he would go. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't. For his hour had not yet come. Now turn to John chapter 12. We go from the announcement of the hour and the protection of the hour to the explanation of the hour in John chapter 12. It's very important for us to note that in John 12, John talks about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. When did that take place? We call it Palm Sunday, right? So this is the last week that Jesus is alive on earth. All of his life from the early miracles my hour's not yet come. The hour's not here. The hour's not here. And now we come to the last week of his earthly life. After the triumphal entry and Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people are shouting Hosanna and they're getting a sense of kingship and they're filled with hope and aspirations about a kingdom. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. These Greeks might have been proselytes, the Greeks who become Jews. They came to Philip, whose name is Greek, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, where a lot of Greeks would live. They went to a Greek and asked him, hey, we would like to see Jesus. We'd like to make an appointment. We want to have an interview with him. We'd like to talk with him personally. So Philip went to find Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say a thing about their request. He might have, but it's not recorded. What is recorded is this. Jesus replied, the hour has come. It's time. Did you know that God is never late? Do you know that? Then how come you and I complain every time he doesn't do what we want to do when we want him to do it? God is never late. His timing is perfect. I love Galatians 4.4. 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God is never late. It's time. It's time for the son of man to be glorified. So this hour has something to do with glorification. That's the explanation. Glory is going to be revealed. Now, the glory of Christ was revealed at the miracle. But this is not just about Christ. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. It's time for me to glorify you. And the hour is all about glory. Glory represents all the perfections of God shining forth, being manifest, so people get a glimpse of the brilliant light. That's what it's about. Father, glorify yourself. 
The hour is also about death or crucifixion. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, then it's going to produce many seeds. Now, this has application to all of us as disciples. We have to die to self if we would be fruitful for God, but primarily it's about Jesus. Jesus said, I have to die so that I can bring many sons to glory. The one seed dying so that many sons will be redeemed by the grace of God. And we know it's about crucifixion because look at verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then you have John 3:16. He's lifted up on a horrible cross, but many people are brought to glory. And then it's also about salvation. Look at verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. In every age, and ultimately from every tribe, tongue, country, and nation. That's why we send missionaries out to the whole world, because Jesus is lifted up and every eye needs to see him. And hopefully every heart embrace him. Did you notice that there is triumph in each one of these statements and glorification? God's glory is put on display. That's triumphant. In death, Jesus brings many sons to glory. He redeems them. That's victory. And the cross will draw the attention of the universe to Jesus, and many people will be redeemed. Hallelujah for the cross. Death, where's your victory? Grave. Where do you think you're going to get off? Jesus has conquered you. Jesus has killed death. He put death to death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the communion service is all about. It's the hour of triumph. It's the hour of sacrifice and redemption. But look at verse 27. I mean, it all makes sense until we get to verse 27. Then it almost seems a little confusing. Jesus said, now my heart is troubled. Jesus, the perfect son of God, God incarnate, had a troubled heart. Exactly. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. That's one translation of that very interesting text. And it almost seems to contradict what we read in the account that talks about Jesus praying in the garden. Mark 14, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. He said to the disciples, go and pray and keep watch. Going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground and he prayed this, that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Should I pray to be saved from this hour? John 12, no. This is the reason I came into the world for this very hour. Mark 14, if possible, I pray this hour may pass from me. What's happening here? Is this a contradiction in Scripture? No. 
But this brings us into the most amazing mystery of all the universe, that God became a man and died, and for a period of time, God was separated from God. I don't think Jesus was saying, save me from this hour. That is, I don't want to go to the cross. I think he was saying, Lord, save me from what's about to happen, this separation between me and you. And all of your sin and my sin being placed upon Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. Imagine how that overwhelmed his righteous, pure heart. And yet, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Save me from this hour? No. This is the reason I came into this world. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to die. And that's exactly what he did. And so when he prays, if possible, may the hour pass from me. It's, Lord, if there's any other way so that you and I are not separated, if there's any other way than me being acquainted with sin. But how did he end that prayer? Not my will, but thine be done. And so what time is it? What time is it? Some of you may not know what time it is because time changed last night. (laughs) Obviously, if you're here at this point, somewhere along the line, someone told you what time it is. I'll never forget when I was pastoring in Ohio. It was one of those days where the time was changing just like this in the fall. And in our church there, we had Sunday school first, and then we had one worship service, and they were about an hour apart. And an old guy came in who was rather crusty. He was something of a curmudgeon. He came to church, I think, only because his wife would drag him every Sunday. But he came, and he came in that morning not knowing the time had changed. And he walked into the vestibule, and I was standing there with one of the deacons, and he looked at me and said, what's going on? I said, well, there was a time change, and we're just starting Sunday school. He came for worship. We're just starting Sunday school. He says, I don't have time for this junk. And he turned and walked out. And I've often thought he said exactly what many people are thinking but afraid to say. I don't have time for this Jesus stuff. I don't have time to read this book. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time for the Lord's Supper. I don't have time for church. I don't have time for you. I don't have time for this. Oh, I'll carve out one little hour to ease my conscience and placate a wife, but I don't care. And if you mess up my time, you know what's going first. (laughs) Not my time, but yours. You know what time it is? Spiritually speaking, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, this is the time of God's favor. And this is the day of salvation. That is the opportunity for you to be saved. God is so merciful and gracious. Judgment is coming. And we don't know when it's coming, but he's given you time right now. It's the day of salvation. It's the time of God's favor. And some of you are not concerned about spiritual things. You could care less. Your heart is not in tune with the Lord. You can take it or leave it. But today is the day of salvation. And you're here by God's mercy. And you saw a sermon in the elements by God's mercy that should draw you to come and trust the Savior. In Hebrews chapter 3, we're told what time it is. Today 
if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did in the day of the rebellion. Today, in fact, this is so important, it's repeated four times in Hebrews. Today, don't let sin harden your heart because sin is deceitful. Today, if you hear his voice, respond. Today is the day for you to get saved. For today is the day for you to come to faith in Christ. Today is the day for you to put down your arms of rebellion and own Jesus and Jesus alone is your Savior. And it's the mercy of God that he's given you today. I don't have time for this. Today is the day of God's favor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will speak to hearts even right now and point out our great need of Jesus. There's some people here, Lord, who have never believed upon you and they need to. There's some people here this morning, they're not sure that they are Christians. And maybe today the Holy Spirit has spoken to their heart. It was the Son who said it's not time. It was the Father who said his time has not come. But it's the Holy Spirit who says it's time. Today it's time. And Lord, I pray that someone here today might say in their heart, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me. Forgive me of my sin and be my Lord and Savior. We know the words aren't so important, but the attitude of the heart is vitally so. And I pray that honest hearts filled with integrity and desperation and repentance, turning from sin and faith in Christ, might cry out to trust you right now. Will you pray? Will you believe? Will today become the day of your salvation? Well, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name.